This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 52 of the SuperAge podcast, dropping on September the 22nd, 2021. It's a little chilly up here in the mountains of Utah today. Uh, it was like 29 degrees this morning. The aspens are turning yellow and it's fall. And I just love the fall, right? It's those lovely smells of the way, you know, the, the trees as they drop their leaves. And it reminds me of like being in school, right? Doesn't fall is the beginning of the year for like if you're in school. And I'm still kind of wired that way. I find, I find September to be um, like a really exciting time of to begin new things. Um, I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? Do you still feel that way? <laughs> I get a lot of questions here from email or from social or, um, you know, people reaching out, wanting to know about health, fitness, longevity, health span things. Because, you know, the reality is there's a tremendous amount of conflicting, confusing, contradictory information on these subjects, you know, things around fitness, food, movement, um, supplements, doctors, all this sort of stuff. So what we're thinking about doing here is in the next couple of weeks to launch a small seminar, um, probably five to six weeks. And we're going to do this on an application basis. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to keep it really tight and small. I don't want, you know, a, a whole ton of people because then you lose the ability to interact with each other and, and to interact with me. And to do this, um, you know, set it up for like once a week with some breakouts um, to go over sort of all those things that are, you know, those topics that are like really confusing out there, but are like super important for all of us to understand. And the, and the thing is, I have had access over the last six years to, you know, some of the world's foremost experts on this. And um, I know a lot about the stuff that works and doesn't work and the stuff that the experts are doing for themselves. So if you're interested in this, you're going to be hearing more about this over the next couple of weeks. But if you want to make sure you get an application, hit me up at david at superage.com and we'll get something out to you with um, a little more concise information on it. This week on the show, we've got Joan London, who is a legend. Joan has interviewed everybody who's anybody probably over the last 40 years. And she's really broken a lot of that glass ceiling that we hear about in terms of age and gender. She's got some great stories for us, and we're going to hear how Joan takes care of herself. We're going to get with her in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Cary Grant. Cary Grant makes my all-time favorite sunblock, and I've spoken a lot about this product in the past because I'm sort of addicted to it. Uh, uh, first of all, it's the best smelling sunblock I've ever used, but it's also the best feeling on my skin. 
So you know how a lot of sunblocks, you put them on and it just feels kind of creepy, like there's this weird icky layer on top of your skin? I never feel that with Caragrand's products. Um, they just make me feel better. And if I feel better putting it on, it means I'm going to use it more. And we all know that we should be putting sunblock on you know, our exposed skin every day. UVA, aging. UVB, burning. We don't want either one of those. So I use Cary Grand's sunblock. It has a nano zinc oxide, and they put it in some yummy plum oil concoction that they the elves up there in Seattle put together that just smells amazing and makes my skin feel great, which means I use it every day. So check them out. CaryGrand.com. K-A-R-I-G-R-A-N. Good people, good products. Hi, Joan. How are you? I'm terrific, thank you. Where are you today? I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut at my oh. home. Um, I actually spend summers up in Maine. My husband owns summer camps for children, um, which is very fortunate for me because he has 17 tennis courts and a climbing wall. <laughs> so, you know, it's my like a little bit of a playground um, when, you know, there aren't a lot of little boys running around on a court. Um, I get to go play some tennis. And uh, so it, it's been a way of life for me for the last 20 years um, that Jeff and myself got together and been married. Um, and it's great. And I, I always schedule my uh, annual physical in September because I figure she's going to see the best me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that strategy. <laughs> we all want to get a good report card, right? Absolutely. Let's just, I, I just want to touch on some of your background. So, you know, you have quite an illustrious background. Good Morning America for how many years? Long time? 20 years. Wow. And, you know, you got to talk to some amazing people. And then no more. Um, and then, you know, they made some changes there. And my, uh, I don't know if I want to get into this, but I, what I understand is some of that was based on age. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, <clears throat> I started that show and I, I think I was 27 years old, maybe 26, uh, just doing some reports for them and filling in for the co-host now and then. And when I turned 30, um, I, and by the way, that was um, when I was having, just getting married, just having my first child. I remember sitting in the newsroom at WABC TV in New York, where I was a reporter and weekend anchor. And my phone rang in my little, you know, cubby and <clears throat> my cubicle. And it was uh, my agent telling me that I had just gotten an offer to be the host of good, the full-time host of Good Morning America. And it was like a quarter to six and I was getting ready for my story in the six o'clock news. So I basically said, fabulous, I'll call you later. And like 15 minutes later, my gynecologist called me and said, guess what? You're pregnant. I was Whoa. pregnant with my first child. And I remember I called my attorney back later that night and said, so now what? Like, will, I, will they still give me the offer? And he said, oh, there have been laws passed recently that, per, that prohibit them from offering it to you. And I mean, it was, those laws were just passed yeah. at that 
time, you know, in 1980. So, you know, and it turned out that they were happy about it because the previous co-hosts had not gelled well with David Hartman, who was like a big star that came out of Hollywood, like a major star that had, you know, had starred in big shows, Lucas Tanner, where he was a teacher and he had been a doctor on one show. So he'd always been in these authoritative characters and he really had eyes to go into the news world and possibly even politics. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, I, I turned out to be somebody who didn't wanna be out on the road all the time to get away from David. I wanted to be there cause I was pregnant and um, and it turned out to really be such a big positive for ABC because for the first time they had this woman on a show who was a married woman um, pregnant showing like I, that was a local coffee table I sat behind. There was no hiding my pregnancy. And that was really unusual. Uh, I remember interviewing one time Florence Henderson, who had hosted the Today Show for a while, and she sat behind kind of a high desk, and they did not want her to show her pregnancy. Mm. Uh, because, of course, if you're a pregnant woman, you don't have a brain in your head, of course. Um, you know, that's just, that was just the thinking back then. Uh, I sat behind this little coffee table, so I had to share it. And thank goodness for that, because the audience related with me. Yeah. You know, I, I, they really related with me. And that really was part of the incredible success of that show. Um, you know, I went away to have my first baby and I, I have to say, I came back like in seven weeks, which I wouldn't really recommend to anyone, but it was um, coming up on the fall uh, season where they, you know, kick off and they wanted me in that seat. So I went back and I said, but I'm breastfeeding. By the way, I don't think we were allowed to even say breastfeeding on the air back <laughs> in those days at that time. I really don't. I don't think you could say the word breast. Um, and I said, so I have, I, I can't leave my baby at home. They said, fine, bring her along. And it was kind of like they wanted me back so bad that they said yes to everything. They gave me a little dressing room for her next to mine. I could bring my baby nurse you know, met me there every morning. And so little baby Jamie slept upstairs while I was on the air. Um, and the public loved that. They loved seeing that. I had women write to me saying, thank you for showing my boss or my husband that as your belly gets bigger, your brain does not get smaller, that you're still a functioning person. And the morning, the very first morning I was ever on the show as host, they did a big press conference after the show. And they invited all the press from Woman's Day and Ladies Home Journal to the New York Times and Time and Newsweek, everybody, to announce me the new co-host. And they took me aside, the PR people took me aside and said, whatever you do, don't mention the kid. Don't mention that you have a baby upstairs because they'll just think that you're not possibly gonna be able to concentrate on being a journalist if you're like also being a mom. I said, okay. So now we do this press conference and David introduces me and I say a little something and we open it up to questions. Time Magazine, hand in the air. 
we understand you brought your baby to work with you. Tell us about that. How did you know what kind? What, how did you manage that? How did you do that? And I'm looking at these PR guys in the back of the room, and I'm thinking, I can't just sit here and not <laughs> Time Magazine. And so you know, they kind of like give me the little head nod. All right, go ahead. And I said, well, you know, I got it in my contract that I could bring my daughter with me, and they've provided a place for her upstairs um, because I am nursing. I was careful not to say breastfeeding. And well, what if you have to go on location? Well, I got it in my contract that if I go away, which I mean, I went away to cover the royal wedding when when my Jamie was, I don't know, eight months old or so. And um, and they, I mean, I took her with me. I took her with me everywhere I went for the first, you know, eight, nine months while I was nursing. And then of course, Newsweek, hand in the air, you know, and the story wasn't about the new co-host of Good Morning America. That was like, so what? They're new hosts of shows all the time. The story was breaking that glass ceiling and acknowledging that you can be a working mother and do both of them effectively. And that a company was actually stepping up to the plate and providing the provisions in a contract that allowed me to do that. And that, so now as all this conversation is going on, of course, the PR guy who had told me never to mention it, ran upstairs, got my little baby, Jamie, seven week old baby, <laughs> raced back downstairs. And all of a sudden I see him in the back of the room with little Jamie in his arms, you know, pointing, I'm bringing her to you, I'm bringing her to you. And he walks up and he hands her to me. And that was the picture in Time and Newsweek and Glamour and Ladies Home Journal and Good Housekeeping and every newspaper was the picture of me with Jamie in my arms sitting next to David Hartman in the co-host seat. Yeah. And that was the story, you know, and I got to tell you, I was never really like a, you know, flag waving, bra burning feminist. Um, even though I was in college in the 70s, when it all started, you know, and um, now was formed and, you know, that was what everybody, every woman was doing on campus. But I didn't go to school. I went to college mainly down in Mexico um, and it wasn't happening down there, that's for sure. And so I, I kind of missed that radical feminism that was going on at the time in order to get life to be more normal, like all of a sudden I was doing. So, you know, here I was just married. I was just putting one foot in front of the other. I just got this big job. I had a baby and like, just get up and go to work. But I started, but the reaction to it really was um, changing society and changing the way corporate America dealt with women. You know, mm -hmm. and to this day, every interview I do, everybody talks about, do you realize how much you changed life for women in the United States? And at the time, I, I think I was just kind of naive to it all. I was just like, I had a big, huge job I just had to worry about and also change the diapers and nurse my baby. Um, so I didn't do it to affect change, but the result of it was a, a huge change in our culture. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, what year was this? Uh, this was um, 1980. My daughter was wow. born on the 4th of July, 
1980, and on August 28th, not much after that, I went back as the full-time host of Good Morning America. So I started there in, um, I'd been there just, you know, as a reporter and fill-in anchor, but that's when I started my daily job as co-host. Well, that is really never, testament. Never thinking, by the way, that I would ever be there for 20 years. Right. Never have that thought. No. Wow. I I mean, I'm thinking about this visual and I, I mean, to me, it it's just illustrates the power that a visual has to tell a story, to move a culture that like you can go out there and, yeah. you know, say, make all kinds of rules and regulations you want. But what really moves it is you and the baby on stage and saying like, hey, we can do this. And That's being amazing. honest about it, being candid yeah. and authentic yeah. and honest. I didn't really have a choice because I mean, I was, I'll give you, I'll give you a visual. One morning I'm interviewing, I don't know who the Senator was, but I was interviewing some Senator about um, then President Reagan's trickle down economic theory. And all of a sudden in the middle of this interview, I was experiencing up close and trickle down personally. Oh. I obviously, oh, no. obviously baby Jamie was hungry and I think it's, there's some kind of a relationship and all of a sudden my breasts, like, you know, all of a sudden I was like Dolly Parton and I'm oh, no. leaking. And oh, no. fortunately I'm wearing something that didn't show it. But like right after that interview, like I had to take a little time out and I had to get a hairdryer and like blow, dry myself off and the show must go on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is, this is that juggling. This is the juggling act. Hello. <laughs> of what you do when you are, you know, I always tell in my speeches, um, the joke about the, uh, the mom who gives the son two beautiful ties. So the next time he goes to dinner at her house, he wears one of the ties. So, you know, make her happy. And she opens the door and says, what, you didn't like the other tie? And that's <laughs> how you kind of always feel. I'm serious. You always kind of feel like you're at work, but should you be wearing the other tie? Are you missing something there? Or if you're at home, like, am I doing the good enough job mm. at work? It's a really it's a complicated line to walk as a woman because today, you know, it's really the majority of women who are working and raising children. It's not the minority like it was back, you know, in those days. Mm. And women everywhere have to walk this unusual path through their life of feeling, of being able to feel good about themselves, that you're adequately covering both ends of that kind of pendulum. Well, let's fast forward um, okay. the late nineties. Yes. And, and then you're. God forbid I was getting older. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, God forbid you first, you had a baby and then you had the gall to get older. I, then on. I had the gall to age. Joan, <laughs> how dare you? And we, we got a, an executive into that position, vice president in charge of Good Morning America. And he didn't really come from the world of news or entertainment. He came from, I don't even know what they call it, but it's like crunching the numbers. It's all the ratings and the demographics of who's mm. watching. And he was convinced that younger is better. The audience wants younger. And so they decided to get rid of Charlie and me. 
Hmm. Um, I went first. I think I was uh, 47, 48. I went first, um, but we realized that they were, that this was their game plan. And um, they replaced us with two basically 30 year old kind of lookalikes of us. Hmm. And to be very honest, I don't (laughs) remember their names. No. (laughs) But they only lasted six months because, I mean, they lost 4 million viewers in 30 days. Because, you know, the audience is not stupid. Right. Audience gets what they're doing. And the audience probably says there, but for the grace of God, go I like. Right. It's not something that I want to see. Right. Because they got older. Boom. They get replaced for some younger, a couple of younger people that we don't know. We haven't spent the last 20 years with them. We didn't invite them into our house. I mean, we you know, that's the difference of early morning television is that you're in people's houses. It's not like nighttime where you got your clicker and, you know, you're doing your thing. We're in their houses when they're still in their maybe PJs and, you know, mm. slippers and the bed's not made. And, you know, maybe they haven't even brushed their teeth. They wouldn't invite a friend over to their house at that particular moment. And there we are, you know, on our sofa. And, you know, when they made Good Morning America, because it was the entertainment division that decided mm-hmm. to do it and and um like did it and put it on the map it didn't have like a gray desk with a blue background and a globe in behind him and every single person coming on was kind of like an, an anonymous face coming from somewhere with the news they built the set like a home mm-hmm. we had a kitchen we had a living room area we had scenery behind us as though you were looking at it, our backyard. That too is what engaged the public because that's comfortable to have come into your home. It was our home to your home. And you know that was all part of what I think made that show um, so popular that it remained number one for 17 years. But when we were taken off the show, um, and these, you know, two young kids were put on. I mean, I say young kids, they were like each probably 30. Um, and it didn't work. So Charlie was still in the ABC system. They had put him on 2020. So they pulled him back in and said, we need you to come back. I had not stayed in the ABC building. Why would I? And then, by the way, they offered me to go to 2020. And I was like, like a bunch of idiots just took me off a successful show where I was successful, never had any big scandals. I'm supposed to trust you? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think so. So I, um, I got a job over at, uh, I think it was Lifetime Television. And I took my show behind closed doors that I had started on GMA as just like a special. They gave me like four specials a year. And I got them to buy it as a weekly show. Mm-hmm. And I loved, that was my other show that I really loved. I got to, you know, fly in F-18s and blow up tanks and go on (laughs) missions with the Navy SEALs. And I mean, it was my ticket to adventure. So I loved that. But in the meantime, they still had a year and a half on my contract. They paid me for a year and a half, way more money than they paid this young 30-year-old girl to come in and be there. I mean, it just... Just so you get a sense of the world of television and the fear of letting your host grow older. 
And by the way, older was 47. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, that was, you know, what are we looking at like 20 years ago, 20 plus yeah. years ago? That seems to have changed dramatically. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, there's that old phrase, 60 is the new 40 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's 100% true. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's this guy that I interviewed. I was probably 27 when I first interviewed him, Ken Dykewald, and he had written a book called Age Wave. Now there's a big, huge, it, it's like one of the top thought leading organizations on the aging of America and on the boomers. And he talked about how the boomers, this huge bulbous population of people were changing the world as they made their way through the decades. Mm -hmm. And they weren't just laying down and saying, okay, I'm old. Like, no way in hell are we gonna do that. Like, look at us, do we look old? No, we don't. So then why do we have to be called old or act old or think old? And, you know, it's really true, the, that, that population the, uh, the, um, the boomer population, as they came through the decades, just changed everything along the way. And certainly they've changed aging. Um, I'm 70 years old. Now, when I was 20 years old, I would have thought 70 years old was old. Yeah. And I would have imagined, you know, what it would look like. And I probably imagined, you know, gray hair and I don't know, retired and I wouldn't have imagined me who's like looking to climb another mountain peak. I told, you know, I have Machu Picchu on my list as soon as we can all travel again. Um, I just never would have imagined that this would have been 70 when I got to be 70, but it's a wonderful thing. Modern science has allowed it to be a wonderful thing. And the boomers and the way they've changed us, that we eat healthy and that we exercise and that we work out with trainers and that we still hike and we still ski and we still play tennis and we have things to do. We work, we have passions and we have responsibilities and goals in life. And all of those things are just as important in my opinion as you know, being active physically. Um, it, it's what gets you up in the morning and gets you dressed and lets you enjoy your life and love life and want to continue it like this. That's right. I, I, I mean, I think one of the difference. I'm 62 and I, I, I think the difference between myself and my parents at this age is this sense of we're looking, we're very forward looking yeah. and we, we, and we demand options. We demand choices and we, you know, we have a sense of uh, possibility that I think is part of our, I don't really like typing generations. I think it's kind of lazy, but I think with us, I mean, we grew up in this time of possibility and it really informed, yeah. you know, we like skateboarding the personal computer, like on and on. Those are our people who did that yes. because they believed in a certain sense of possibility and that we actually deserve possibility. Like we demand it in a way that, you know, like my mom, um, lettuce was this the iceberg thing, right? There was there wasn't anything else in the supermarket, and <laughs> right, remember that. Yes. And then, like us, we go in and there's like oh, there's like a dozen different kinds of lettuce. So there's this that like I think is a, and kale and things that actually have nutrients. <laughs> yeah. iceberg lettuce, which has zero. What, I don't even know what that is. Uh, but I think it's all sort of all through our. Um, 
it's not just about the vegetable section in our lives. It's everything. Yeah. And I think that we have a drive. It, you know, my, my parents came out of, you know, wars and depression and we come out of this idea of um, almost uh, like actualization. You know, yeah. we want to become, we, we feel like we have this drive to become the best version of ourselves. And, and, and how can we do that? Certainly that's what is at the heart of me and what drives me, you know, since leaving Good Morning America, I remember a reporter asked me the question as I was leaving GMA, wow, Miss London, I mean, what could you possibly do after this? I mean, and I was like, I, I don't know, I got lots of plans. Absolutely. Was, yeah, and you know, I've, as opposed to going to another full-time program, I've just, I've had the luxury, let's be honest, after being at GMA for 20 years to be able to pick and choose. I remember my attorney said to me as I was leaving that show, your biggest challenge going forward is going to be knowing what to say no to. Mm. And he was right because mm -hmm. I get, a, I've had just a tremendous amount of opportunities come my way. I've acted on them. That's, that's number one. You know, people hear opportunities all, all the time, but if you just don't have your mind open and you don't have belief in yourself, you let them kind of pass by because, oh, gee, it sounds fantastic. I guess for someone else, but I say yes to opportunities. My husband always says, if you want to take a page out of the Joan London playbook, it is whenever someone asks if you can do something, just say yes. Absolutely. Then, I love and that. Go, and then go yes. figure out how to do right. it. Who cares right. Who you don't know how. Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you one right now. Um, I, I mean, I'm still doing a lot in the world of broadcasting. I have a show on PBS. It's called Second Opinion with Joan London. I love it because it's health related. And I also love it because we shoot in batches. So I can go into a studio and shoot 10 shows in a week. Um, and so it's not that everyday grind. Um, I work on campaigns for everything from the American Cancer Society to American Heart Association to, I, I mean, they go on and on. Um, uh, but I've always had something on my bucket list and the opportunity came to me uh, about a year or so ago. Um, my husband went to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. So he goes to a lot of the alumni events and I go with him and they came to me and said, we are building a new college of health to really study population health. And it's interesting because before this pandemic, nobody really, really understood the word population health. Now we do. Now all of a sudden we know what the you know, World Health Organization does and the CDC does. And we understand that it's important to track the health and the lifestyle habits of people in different countries, different populations around the world and migration. So you know what diseases are taken with, you, with them to another population. And, but this was before the pandemic happened. And I had been out talking, I'd, I had gone through the aging thing with my mom and, and made all the mistakes that you make. And so I, I kind of became the poster child for uh, senior living and senior housing. And, you know, I worked with, uh, I still work with the place for mom and I go to Congress, I lobby, I guess it's not called lobbying. I, testified before 
I wrote recently to the House Ways and Means Committee to testify for the Family Medical and Leave Act to make sure that anyone that needs to take care of an older person, whether it's a, a sibling, um, like everybody should get, um, we want everybody to do this because it, otherwise it's a huge expense for this country if we don't have loved ones stepping in and doing this. And it kind of put me in that category. And so I started doing all this speaking around the country on aging, the aging process. It led me, as you know, to write a book about it. Um, why did I come into this room? <laughs> I still love the name of it because it's the one thing that scares everybody the most. They think, oh my God, something's wrong with me. But, you know, they, this Lehigh University was all of a sudden building this enormous college of health. And they said, can we pick your brain a little bit? We know you're out talking about the aging of the population all the time. And I got into conversations with them. And this is just a area of interest to me. And I'm kind of passionate about it. Uh, obviously you are too. Uh, and they said, wow, would you possibly consider teaching a class here? And I was like, well, that happens to be on my bucket list to kind of use my knowledge of my life to go in and, and teach. And so I accepted a faculty position at Lehigh University. So I'm, and, and I, my first class is August 23rd. I'm, Are you excited? How do you feel? I'm very, very, I'm nervous too. <laughs> you know, I mean, I speak, you know, before the pandemic, I probably did 40 speeches a year. I was on the road all the time, but you're up on a podium and your audience is out there. It's an adult audience. So a couple of weeks ago, I went to Lehigh and they had me go into the classroom where I'm going to be teaching. And like, you're at this, you know, counter and the first row of kids, kids, uh -huh. you want to talk about a tough audience, kids, uh -huh. are like right there. Like the, the first <laughs> row is like five feet from me. Um, I am do, but I've designed a course that is very unique for a university. I'm not lecturing. I'm interviewing an expert in the field of public health or population uh -huh. health or broadcast media in every class. And so these students, and we capped it at 50. I wasn't. I come from the world of television. Like, <laughs> the more people, the better, right, the higher right. rating. And the dean of the college said, so do you want to correct like three, 400 papers? I was like, oh, no, I forgot about that part. <laughs> so we capped it at 50, but uh, there was so much interest from alumni when they found out I was doing this, that we're now going to be um, live live streaming the class to any alumni that want to sign up for it. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your health and your routine, because every, everything that you do really depends upon your body being yeah. able to do it, right? We have to, we have to take care of it. it. Absolutely. So let's talk about you and what, what are your non-negotiables? Like, What's, what's your day like? What do you have to do every day to keep yourself at the level that you're at? Get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. And I don't think most people really understand the significance of, of the need for sleep so that your brain can get all of the um, amyloids out of it. Mm -hmm. It's like a little car wash yep. at night and it washes it all out. If you don't get them out, you wake up with kind of a brain fog and you wonder why. Mm -hmm. um, you also 
tend to have a harder time to lose weight. There's a lot of things that happen by not getting enough sleep. Um, I honor my body more now for both physical activity and equally important rest. And I didn't used to honor rest. Mm. I used to think that if I laid down on a sofa in the middle of the day and read a few chapters of my book, that I was really a lazy ass, you know, just what I mean, just is just unacceptable. And I've, I've learned. Um, but of course, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s, and even in your 50s, you're in the fast lane going about 170. And it's interesting that you do allow yourself, I think, and it's probably a different age for everybody, but somewhere around 60, you allow yourself the luxury of deciding when you want to put your foot on the gas and when you want to um, exercise and when you want to rest. <clears throat> and I think that's important. Um, I, uh, I try my best to eat as clean as possible um, you know, from the kind of butter I buy to the kind of bread I buy to taking dairy out and changing over to almond milk and um, to trying my best to get my six to eight glasses of water every day. Or That one's hard, isn't it? I always it forget so that one. <laughs> it's so not, simple, but it's so hard. I am so bad at this that yeah. I really have to talk to myself. Like I walked downstairs just a little while ago with a couple of glasses that, you know, I had a I'd poured myself a glass and I was going to like pour it in the sink. And I said, what are you doing? Don't do that. Drink it. <laughs> so, you know, I like 20, 20 sips. I said, okay, now aren't you much happier with yourself right now that you got that in? But I mean, I literally have to talk my way mm -hmm. through that one. Um, the pandemic taught me that I can work out with my trainer on zoom. That was huge. That, you know, I, I, I don't have to say, oh, well, I can't go to the gym and I can't do this. Well, hello, I have a laptop. And so I work out with my trainer, you know, three days a week. And she's great because she's like my little cheerleader and my guilt leader that if I, if I don't call and schedule it, she'll like text me and say, come on, we've only done two. And that's, you know, she's like my partner in staying healthy. Um, there's also other things that I'm finding that are, that I are so, what's the word? They're so gratifying. And that is allowing myself to go through my house and organize and let go and throw away stuff. It's almost like, you know, having a messy desk. Now having a clean desk, by the way, after I kind of left GMA, a clean desk used to scare the crap out of me because that meant I wasn't doing, I wasn't working, I wasn't doing something. But now I allow myself to, to go through and like I came home early from camp and I've been in my house for six days without you know a ton of teenagers and people. And I, I remember I, I interviewed a woman, I don't remember her name, but she wrote a book called The Something of Tidying Up. Maria Kondo, right? Yes. Yeah. And I remember thinking, doo, 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 doo. I mean, like, what is with this woman? You're going to talk to your clothes and thank them for the service. <laughs> that you do? Well, guess what? I have been talking to my clothes. I have been talking to my shoes saying you're really cute, but you don't really fit me right anymore. And I 
gave away, I, I don't even know what to tell you, like two stalls worth in my garage of clothes and stuff. And like my brain just feels lighter. My, I emotionally, and by the way, I did think it all. <laughs> I mean, what the heck, you know, it's worth trying. Um, and, and by the way, it felt kind of good. Like, you know, you've served me, but yeah. I mean, I, I found out, th I threw some things away that I had at GMA, like, hello, I haven't been on GMA for 20 years. Um, and it just was such a relief to get things, to let go, to yeah. let go of stuff that, you know, so now I like walk in my closet and I can actually see each outfit. They're not all scrunched in between 50 other things that I'm not going to wear. It's like a clearing of the head. And I don't think I would have been able to do that when I was 40. I, like I, I was, that, yeah, I was running way too fast to stop and actually even have that thought process. Well, well I think we have the, the equation backwards. Like we think all this stuff um, we need to take care of us. Actually, we're living our lives to take care of it. <laughs> when is that dirty board frees up space? Do you remember there? I used to see t-shirts that said, um, he who has the most stuff when they die wins. And oh. now that's not true anymore. No. It's he who has, or she, uh, those who have the most experiences in life. Right at their time of death wins. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, I don't know if you have seen my book, but my last chapter, which by the way is, I wanna be cremated. It's my last chance for a smoking hot body. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had so much fun writing my chapter <laughs> titles. You know, most women deal with leaky bladders, you know, past 50 or after having a baby and my husband walked through when my office one day and said, what are you working on? I said, I'm writing a chapter about leaky bladders. And he says, well, you can't really say it like that. Can you? I said, Oh, listen, the chapter, this title is I laugh so hard tears roll down my leg. And he like gives me <laughs> arched eyebrow, like, are you sure you should be doing this? And you know, my, my chapter on exercise uh, on the, what was it? Um, on weight. And I said, why can't I lose weight? Like I lose my keys, my car and my sex drive, <laughs> you know, authenticity and just putting it out there and telling stories that are happening to everyone out there, but we are not inclined to talk about them. It kind of opens up that, that opportunity. I mean, I have women every day on Facebook and Instagram that says, oh my God, everything you talk about is happening to me. And sometimes they're 40 and sometimes they're 80, like, and everybody in between. And they think I'm writing for like that age. But the end chapter in my book, I have people do an exercise. I have them write their own eulogy and their uh -huh. own obituary. And it's not a morbid challenge. It is an eye-opening possibility opening, opening challenge, because, you know, and I take them through this exercise of being at their own funeral mm -hmm. and everybody's walking by the casket, the guys from work, you know, they're your family members. And what are they saying about you? How are they describing you? However they, you would wish that you would like for them to be describing you. 
then set those things as your goal and live the, you got the rest of your life. And now it's almost like a, mm. like a, a beacon, you know, you can right. find a guide, guideposts. That's you right. Can create those guideposts for yourself. And that kind of, I think, opens up the possibilities of when you stop like working, working, that maybe you, maybe you do things for other people. Like, do you mm -hmm. want to be known that you were always there to help others? Um, like whatever it, and if there are things that you don't want people to say to you, then, then Change start it. working on those. Don't <laughs> interrupt so much. If you don't want people to say, oh my God, she was such a social climber. She interrupted all the time. She da da da. You have the opportunity to set these as goals for yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I really got into those those last couple of chapters. I, I, I mean, I tell people if you want to know how to live well, have a vision of how you want to die. And, um, you know, myself, I tell people at the age of 96, I want to have a massive cardiac while climbing the Alps. <laughs> so, yes. In, in order to manifest that, there's all this other stuff that I got to do to make that happen. You know, I remember um, I was probably turning 40. Uh, as I was turning 40, I I had this big aha moment. I had a, a somebody on for American Heart Association on the show, and they had brought along this uh, a quiz to let our viewers assess their cardiovascular risk. And I'm listening right. to these questions, not enough sleep, da, da, da. and I oh, realized no. I'm totally failing this test completely. Oh, no. So I literally took on my health as yeah. another job as a second yeah. occupation yep and i started working with a nutritionist and a trainer and i i really changed myself it's not just that i lost 35 pounds i changed the way i lived my life i came to understand that i needed to honor myself and think about that before i put that you know um, fast food burger into my mouth um, that I needed to, I needed, I just completely changed. And by the way, ended up marrying a guy that was 10 years younger than me. So hello, it kind of works. But as I went through this process, um, you know, everybody out there wanted to know, God, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? And my kids finally said, would you just write a book already? We're tired of hearing everybody ask you how you did it. Because of course, everyone wanted to hear that magic bullet right but what it was was i mean i just decided i remember one time my daughter said to me i was you sent me on this cross country in el salvador whatever it was for the summer and we were hiking this mountain and i was on the side of the mountain and i was like god why did i let mom send me on this i can't go any further and then i remembered what you always said to me you have to want it more than you're afraid of it right like, <laughs> right wow, really that you thought about me and yep, I got myself up and I finished climbing that mountain and I felt great about it when I got to the top of it. And, you know, that's kind of how I, I think more and more people are living their lives these days. And it's really important because if you just look at the statistics, we're all living 20 and 30 years longer than yep. our parents so my mom died a few years back at the age of just short of 95. She mm -hmm. never, she thought she would live to 65. Right. Why? Because in 1939 in this country, the average life expectancy was 59. And she was a young woman then. 
So she thought if she lived to 65, that would be like, whoa, that would be fantastic. And then, I mean, I remember she always used to say to me, like, I'm really happy and everything's great, except all my friends are gone. <laughs> like oh. she, she, and she just didn't expect to live that long. But now we have to understand that we probably will. There was a picture on the cover of, uh, I don't remember what it was, Time, Time or Newsweek, Time, of a little baby. About a year ago, they did this um, major cover story. And the, and the words below the little baby were, the person who will live to be 128 has already been born. Yep, that's right. I mean, we're, we, are, we are going to live longer and longer. And if we crack the nut at all on dementia, then forget about it. Then people will really live longer. Mm -hmm. And that's either like really exciting or really daunting. Um, but we, we better be prepared for it. That's and right. we've got to change the way we think. And we, you know, they say the top three things that will um, kind of dis decide how successfully you age are staying involved, staying involved in life, don't check out, having social connections, and that's not just, you know, your daughter who comes over to take care of you. That's friends and finding places to go out and be so that you have people that you can think about. I can't wait to call her and tell her. Um, and the third thing is having um, a sense of, of uh, meaning. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you have to go start a philanthropic organization. It can be... Um, starting a vegetable garden and getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I got to get dressed because I got to get out there and I got to like weed that thing. It's a sense of, you know, that you're, you have a purpose. It's a sense of purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And I think all three of those are just so critical. Absolutely. I, I had the honor. I, I interviewed Dr. Connie Mariano, who was head of White House Medical under Bush and Clinton. And she has a very specific sort of data sets she looks at, which are ex-presidents. And she was telling me how they tend to live much longer than other people, even though they have this incredibly stressful job. And yeah. she said, it's really the three things that, that you said, like once you stop being president, it's not like you're yep. just, you just check out. Um, if you look at like Jimmy Carter, I don't know what it's going to take to like and Jimmy Carter, but it's, I mean, he's been well, through look at all of them. enormous it make a difference who you look at. Yeah. Um, they've, I mean, you think about Ford, you think about um, Bill Clinton. I mean, all the global issues they're involved yep. in. Absolutely. And they really stay involved and they yes. have a big sense of purpose. Yes. And that keeps them going. It keeps them thriving and having a passion to continue living in life. And, and that's really yeah. the ultimate kind of example of what I'm talking about. It's hundred percent. And they have the social connections. And I, you know, I yep. think, you know, when we talk about, you touched on a couple of things, uh, the idea of social connections, I think, yes, they're the sort of primary ones like husband, daughter, family, these sort of tight ones. But I also think they're these secondary connections out yeah. there, which is why I'm kind of anti Amazon. Like I like going into the checkout and speaking Me to too. the person. I like going to the dry cleaner. I like going to the post office because it, it's I have this moment of human connection to these people wow. that I, I think that that's 
um, that's a little underrated in our, you know, on time delivery, everything world. Uh, and, and I think this idea of, you know, purpose and meaning can sort of get people twisted up. It's, you know, it's like when you ask a, you ask a teenager, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a terrible question to ask someone. <laughs> it's, no, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. Like if you ask somebody who's 65 and you say like, so what's your purpose? Like, oh my God. Um, can we just go like dial that back a little bit and say, how are, um, let's think about usefulness, which is something like we can all answer. Yeah. And, and, and it's just an easier, I find that question of purpose and meaning, it's so loaded. It just, it just paralyzes people. Um, it can be much less. You know, so for you, John, what are you focusing on right now? You know, ever since I left GMA, every project I've worked on has been health related. And maybe it was that little bit that I always wished that I had really carried on my dad's legacy. But when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I said, odd, but you just got handed the opportunity to carry on your dad's legacy. Mm -hmm. Find out everything you can possibly find out about breast cancer and help others. And I started taking my phone in with me to every single appointment, videotaped everyone, interviewed all the doctors and started sharing that and, you know, ended up testifying in Congress to try to get mandatory mammogram reporting. And I, I mean, it really became my opportunity. I mean, that terrible diagnosis became this amazing, fantastic opportunity to carry on my dad's legacy. And, you know, it's probably the most important assignment I was ever given uh, in my broadcasting life and career. Um, so, you know, I'm, and here I am. I mean, I'm still going to be going and putting myself not only with a lot of people talking, but young people talking and asking questions of and having them ask me questions. But I'm going to be once again talking to them about our population and about how we keep a population healthy and safe. Um, we only got a few minutes left, but I, I wanted to ask you the title of your book, which is, why did I come into this room? What, do you, what, do you, what does that mean? Joan, help me out. You know, there's a lot of changes that you go through as you age. And particularly if you are a woman, because as the estrogen drops in your body, we have all kinds of things that change with us. Our waistline goes away. We get hot flashes. We get a weak pelvic floor. Everything just kind of goes bleep, out the window. But the thing that everyone, male or female, seem to worry about the most is walking into a room and saying, why did I come into this room? And at that moment, you think, oh my gosh, is this the start of something terrible? And by yeah. the way, the answer is probably not. It's probably kind of age-appropriate forgetfulness that happens to everyone as our hippocampus starts to shrink a little bit. Um, but because I thought that that's the thing that really scares people the most, losing that cognitive decline and the fear of losing your inability to remember people's names and remember words, that's the scariest. So that's what I went with. So that, you know, you want a title that's going to make everybody think that, wow, th this is something I think about all the time. And I think pretty much everyone over 50 even has walked out of the mall and said, where did I park my car? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for the, the key that beeps the car, right? Thank I, God for that I, little I, tile <laughs> thing. And thank God for ways. 
<laughs> I don't know how I lived my life before Waze. <laughs> so I, I just want to sort of draw the thread here between, sure. you know, when you were younger, going, you know, with your baby, which was like a real exercise in authenticity back then. Yeah. Um, to now, you're still a testament in authenticity, just on a different subject. On a different subject. And the... It, and I'm even more authentic and honest to the point my husband was like, you can't say those things. And I said, yes, I can. This is going to be why women are particularly going to stick in there because they're going to say, oh, my God, that happens to me, too. Yeah. And the more candid and authentic you can be, I think the more useful and, yes. and helpful you can be. And you know That's what? Right. I'm going to be 71 in September. So what the hell? If someone doesn't like me for it. Okay. What are they? What are they going to do to you? You know. <laughs> do fire me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Joan, it is it is an honor. It's a bit of an, an intimidating um, experience for me having you oh. on my show. You who have interviewed the heads of state and you know all the, the all the fame and glitterati of uh, you know the last forty years, and it it's just really a joy to have you here and. And I love your spirit. I just think it's tremendous. Uh, well, this has been great fun, very enjoyable. And, uh, and invite me back sometime. This has been great. Wonderful. Have a great day today, Joan. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. It's great to have you with us. And hey, a big shout out to Marilyn Grant, who left me just the most lovely comment on the Apple Podcast app. She says... I spend a lot of time consuming science shows, Atia, Huberman, Patrick, etc. And I'd actually pre-purchased Lemke's book, I Can't Wait. I loved your podcast. Just listen to Royzen and Lemke's shows. And honestly, you far exceeded my expectations. Hey, Marilyn, we aim to please. We're doing the best we can. Um, which brings up, there is so much going on in the ageist ecosystem. So, you know, check out the stuff that's on the newsletter. Check out the comments that people are writing. We had an amazing article last week on running. And we are starting every week to do a roundup of the best health and science articles that come across our plates every week. And some of that is from, you know, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who we think is awesome. So check all that out and please participate. Um, join the comments, Instagram, Facebook, on the website or hit me up, David, superage.com. Love to hear from you. Everyone have a wonderful week and we'll see you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye.